Hello, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, fellow travelers along the way. Welcome to another episode of the Avalon Mentors Podcast. Sir, or afternoon is the case may be for you. Right. So, but before we do, how are you doing over there? You sound like your temperature has soared through the roof. So yeah, it's 92, deg- 92 degrees Fahrenheit right now. Um, bloody, just muggy. Muggy is all good out. Sunny, hot. Unusual. It's hazy now. The clouds moving in. We're going to get a thunderstorm this afternoon. That unusual? Yeah, it's, this, is, this is very much like late July early August weather, you know, in August last year, we got, you know, it was in the nineties during the day, a few days, you know, it got close to a hundred or maybe just a hundred. Um, we're, we're just two months too early for this. It's not, not we went straight from, straight from winter into, into the heat of summer. So it's going to wreak havoc on the, um, horticultural and agricultural production nearby. Yeah, we're getting a similar thing. Even today, it's yesterday. It was fifty degrees and rainy and cold in the morning, and uh, it was rainy and cold the day before that. It's been cold for a while now, down in the forties, which is highly unusual mm. for area. But then, right. I think it's supposed to be eighty-nine. Oh wow! So I just really can't can't settle on something reasonable. It's got to be either too cold or too too hot. Yeah, and you look at the you look at the radar, and there's this for us anyway. There's this inland hurricane going on, like the two streams from the mm. Gulf up and just making this thing going on right over. It just keeps going east and and west, you know, shifting back and forth, and so we get hit by it, and then it clears up, and we get hit by it, and clears up. It's very very strange. I mean, it makes me appreciate a day like today so much more when I wake up and there are no clouds in the sky. Just gosh, dismal. Yeah. You know, I was maybe I should, maybe we should wait and go on record about this bit, but I was thinking the other day about the experience of this weather change, and I know it happens periodically on the Earth, and how Ooh, different. Let's talk about that. You know, the 14th century weather change mm-hmm. occurred, that horrible cooling that that went went on in 1315, and how everybody mm-hmm. starved by 1317. There's no food and. Just day after day of miserable weather, um, lasting all the way up until the 1400s, apparently. Yeah, that would have been just ghastly, just terrible. I mean, it's no wonder they, you know, they get so sick of it, they decide to start the Hundred Years' War. <laughs> oh. Just finally fed up with it all. Yeah, right, exactly. I can't, I can't, I can't help but think, I mean, I'm very grateful for the modern era for being able to survive a thing like this, but I can't help but think that it puts a lot of stress on everybody, not just the farmers, but on everybody when you have this kind of strange yeah. one. Yeah. And I think, I, I, I think it, <clears throat> as you say, 
I, uh, I believe in the uh, Jurassic Park principle that there's a certain equilibrium that's naturally, that uh, necessarily is achieved, um, whether harmoniously or brutally uh, forced equilibrium by just the, uh, the, the sort of the macro system. And so I wonder how much of an advantage actually it is. You know, you've, you've got all the tools and amenities and technologies to survive the weather and the food shortage because you've got logistics and all of this. But you've also then, you know, there's the flip side is, that of course, you, we've come to rely on those things and nobody can grow. Nobody produces a thing for themselves, but we rely on things that are shipped from far away, or at least in the United States, even, even more so than, than much of Europe does. Um, you know, if that goes down, you're, you're in trouble. But, but the thing that occurs to me is, of course, you've got much more disastrous weapons now today due to that very same technology, so that if, if people are going to be under the same kind of psychological stress, regardless, you know, it's maybe more avoidable now, but when the severe, you know, the, the, the medium kind of wave things are more avoidable nowadays, um, or mitigatable, when a severe change comes, you've got a much greater capacity for just deciding to pick a hundred years war, uh, you know, just let's let's decide to start the hundred years war is a lot a uh, lot less disastrous on a global scale when it's just uh, you know at most crossbows and a few minor explosives. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to say. You have something there with the Jurassic principle, which I like. That uh, um, Jurassic Park is a wonderful movie and and book by Michael Crichton, mm. where the, the, there are certain lines out of there that just stick with me ever since I saw the movie. It's supposed to be just a fun mm -hmm. action. It has some seriously powerful lines, that Jeff Goldblum line about how you were so intent on finding out whether you could, you never stopped to consider whether you should. Right. And, and, uh, and then your principle, of course, how nature finds a way and there's an equilibrium that, that, that occurs. I, yeah. I think do that, definitely. Pro call, you know, call it providential. I don't know what, it, you know what exactly the term, the right term would be on that score, but you know, I, Cameron. I, on one hand, I'm very, I'm very um, enamored of the idea of living off the land and living simply and all that. And I really like that idea. <clears throat> then, on the other hand, I read history and I think, God damn, I don't want to be in that situation. You know, and <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know which one is really worse necessarily. The one which would be terrible physical privation, and um, and yet maybe you have a strength of character because you were used that you were you're inured to that kind of struggle. And then our situation, a... we have no serious uh, physical struggles, and yet we have these monsters that crop up because they're, you know, they're, they're so devoid of meaning and tortured by um, the modern era. So right. it's say. I mean, have you, do you follow what's going on in the news and the states? I'm sure you get a, a different... <clears throat> on what happens over here because the, the news systems over there are probably a different machine to some degree. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, especially in, in the higher, extremely highly polarized, <coughs> excuse me, environment that's evolving rapidly. Today, of course, you know, the, the foreign, um, as to say, this side of the pond, the news is um, not necessarily so caught up and not immediately partisanized. Um, from within the United States system, right? So there's there's definitely an angle, but it's an angle of the different competing 
uh, perspectives that exist in Europe, which don't line up with the the American by you know the the binary American system. Um, you know, they certainly have their, their extreme differences, but they're just not category. They don't fit into the same categories, right? Mm -hmm. um, they probably so, work with their big neighbor to the to the east, right? Yeah, you know, somewhat. And even there, it's very different. Each country has very, very different takes on it because of their own particular histories um, sure. and concerns and their concerns with their neighbors. You know, nobody, nobody here has forgotten you know, all the um, backhand, you know, backdoor deals, you know, alliances and that kind of thing from, you know, the, you know, a little over 100 years ago, leading up to World War One, you know, into the 19th century sort of house of cards that was built. Uh, and there's still a lot of those same principles legally that exist internationally. Um, and so you see some of the same patterns, you know, watching, watching the international relations that are going on here in Europe right now feels like playing a game of diplomacy, if you've ever... Had the joy of setting that up, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, it's, it's like watching the history in that way. But no, in the United States, we can see you know everybody's of course just appalled. This is the usual reaction in Europe: is something happens in America, we are just appalled that you can't get it together. You know, um, it's, that's the first reaction. You know, it's not like well, should there be gun control or not, or gun control versus abortion, right? It's just. Like, that's not the first thing we go to because, you know, we've got very different, you know, concerns for our own, you know, governance and all of that. It's just, my God, really, it doesn't matter. Why do you keep killing each other? Yeah. Yeah. And, like, and there's something much deeper than the tool used or the, the political ideology uh, adhered to so much. It's just something much deeper under the surface going on if this happens with that kind of frequency. Yeah, and I think that that's, a, that's actually astute because that's really the more that's the higher argument that we ought to be having here in the states is what is actually at the core of this not this this craziness that leads not just to you know what happened down in texas but the craziness that leads <clears throat> sorts of other beastly things you know the rioting what? that we had to go or the um the uh rise in crime or whatever it is or what, what what is up with that and i think nobody here in america this is an odd thing i think nobody here in america really wants to address the fact that it has to do with human psyche the soul itself but they want to address the fact that that we have too many guns or you know or that um we need better schools something, or... well yeah because that's something that's safely externalizable right? yeah. it's something outside of something out there and so it's safe i don't have to worry about for the deep existential crisis, which, because that implicates me, right? Sure. I mean, you know, every, every one of us, you know, to have that conversation implicates, I mean, it's one, to admit that personally, as a high-powered CEO or lobbyist, uh, politician, you know, military leader, um, I've got some really deep problems, like I'm in a bad way, like things yeah. aren't well, um, that kind of thing, which is true for, me for, for many, many, it doesn't matter what rank you have in society. And I've worked with people in, all, in, in those particular ranks, and it's the same thing as everybody else. To say that I'm personally in a bad way, and that as, in, as a society, we've got something very deep, dark skeletons we need to address and change. Yeah. Um, but that's what Eric Fromm writes a lot about, you know, coming from the post-war experience. You know, he's got the great works, Escape from Freedom, and, um, you know, the sort of drive towards death and totalitarianism because freedom, true freedom is a lot harder to try and manage and actually deal with and live up to than its counterfeits. And uh, sane society 
the sane society is the essential premise. And Walker Percy summarized that one very well. He did a review of the book and corrected some of the uh, corrected some of the mistakes that Fromm made. But Walker Percy's review of the sane society, which is uh, a brief essay, I mean, it's a book review called "The Coming Crisis in Psychiatry." I highly recommend it. Highly recommend yeah. it. I mean, essentially, the premise is. You know, we talk about anxiety and depression, you know, existential malaise, all these things as though there's psychiatric disorders. It's just, but what if, there's a frightening proposition, what if they're just a very natural, healthy reaction to a very sick, sick system? Hmm. You know? In other, in um, other words, just an individual here or there, the problem is sort of an issue. Right. Yeah. yeah, you know, that, you know, if, if, I don't know if you're put into a dank, dark cell and there's, you know, black mold all over and you get ill, we don't say, well, you've got a sickness, but you're in an unhealthy environment, <laughs> you know? Um, and so maybe these things that we're seeing are not excusable, but they're the direct symptom of being in an unhealthy environment. So, so yeah. the society that's been created is an unhealthy environment for the human organism. Yeah, and I think it's a trap for people to say everything's okay, everything's fine, you know, we, you just keep trucking along. Yeah, uh, the kids aren't all right, man. Kids are not all right. Yes, uh, the WHO recognized that way back when. Uh, and it was not right uh, early on, it seems like. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, here in the States, I've always appreciated, I don't know whether it happens in Europe, but I've always appreciated here in America that there is a very strong conversation going on about how we're supposed to govern ourselves. And that goes way back. I mean, that's, that's, that's Hamilton who, who writes about how, whether or not we're going to be the subjects of accident and force or whether we're going to be able to decide our fate by deliberation and choice. You know, so it's something which we've, we've held here for, for a long time. The, the problem with that that I see is that on the one hand, <coughs> you have to allow some people to be wrong or some people to have crazy ideas and sometimes those crazy ideas can really go off the rails, like really go off the rails. In fact, they, they drag the whole society off the rails. And on the other hand, even though I think that we had that healthy debate at the beginning, I think this country at the very beginning had the issue that it was focused primarily on, on prosperity of money, you know, prosperity of finance, and not necessarily focused on flourishing of the individual soul. And I, I may be talking, you know, completely off the cuff here on that, but I, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot in the original founding of the country, which, um, which wanted to talk about uh, how do you make the most money out of the out of the least effort, and that's kind of ingrained in us nationally. I mean, the very fact that the very fact that the original proposition that Locke puts forth is that every man has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. You know, Thomas mm -hmm. Jefferson said that to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because he thought it was too squalid to talk about property. But he was thinking mm -hmm. about it. They were thinking about it. I think that in our current era, we, we still think about that. Um, how do we make the most property and the most capital even when we are trying to deal with religious questions? How do I yeah. maximize religious return? How do I, you know, how do I keep religion in a box and yet uh, make holistic healing for myself. You know. All right. So some uh, philosopher of the last century talked about the reign of quantity and America is the driving engine, uh, yeah. not, not alone among the nations, but it's the dynamo because yeah. of 
that you know it's in, in because it's an invented state from the ground it's not only an invented state like many of the modern nation states in europe but it's an invented society in the sense that it was founded from the beginning on certain principles it's a it's one that you know where the french revolution tried to impose a rationalistic system on a pre-existing people which means you had to you know carve away and liquidate the un undesirable elements of society yeah, like and the united states it was, you know, sort of crafted piecemeal, albeit, but, you know, piecemeal crafted from the ground up from a rationalist endeavor. Let's start with a constitution of some sort, documents, articles of confederation, something, and uh, and build it. I mean, essentially build it like a business. You know, I mean, we start yeah. with the articles of incorporation and uh, you know, it's a partnership between a couple of people. We enfranchise more people, but it all follows this sort of rational endeavor in order to form a more perfect union for greater prosperity and, you know, these kinds of things. And it reads like a business plan and it follows a business plan. Um, that yeah. maybe, maybe at the root, there's small, you know, albeit small errors in the root, perhaps something that already sets you off course away from uh, humanity, away from something that's genuinely good for humanity. Well, let me, let me, let me, let me step in there just to um, comment on that. Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, I don't, this is not an American bashing session, certainly. And I love, mm, I love No, that's at all. But at the root of the thing, I, I, I would think that, I would propose that it's not that it's deeply flawed at the root, but that at the root, there's something that allows the possibility for a deeply flawed thing to occur. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in that sense, it's that, it's that, look, if you're going to have a, the structure of the government that was created here, I think, is really admirable. And I think it's amazing how they were able to craft this with such cantankerous individuals in the beginning, because they really did have a great deal of friction between them. So yeah. it's really spectacular that they crafted the, the country the way they did. Um, but embedded in that was the possibility for certain individuals to seize more and more power. And this is maybe, this is a universal human trait. Mm -hmm. um, the, the idea <laughs> to mitigate the, the power of the individuals by uh, using their own vice against them, you know, using, as they say in the Federalist Papers, to, to turn the desire for power and factions so that it would be mitigated by other people and also by their own person's, person, their, their personal desire for whatever they wanted and mm -hmm. whatever they that's why the whole checks and balances system, for instance, that's why the whole right. uh, allowing people to make great capital so that they would not be rapacious. Um, but at, at the same time, it opened the door for something which I think is only recently accelerated, metastasized almost. Metastasized, that's a good word for it. But I see something happening and starting probably in the 70s, but particularly in the last few years here is really... It's heinous, and 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 the the awfulness of it is that the conversation about how we're to live, the conversation about how we're supposed to govern ourselves, and how we're supposed to develop our spiritual lives and our connection to to God and and the land, has is polarized. It's it's not happening anymore. You know, there's mm -hmm. not a about what's wrong with us or what needs to be fixed. Whereas that conversation used to occur all the time, you know, 19th century, they had that conversation all the time and they had these revivals that would occur to gin up the thing again. You had great writers, for instance, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ambrose Bierce, 
who would write mm -hmm. what they saw as ills. And I don't, I mean, maybe I'm not seeing it right now because I'm not looking in the right places, but I don't see the writers or artists making that critique because most of them have been commercialized. You know, they've been de devoured by the big corporations and made money making. Mm -hmm. And so you don't see a lot of artists writing or composing uh, uh, that might jar us into a conversation again. Right. And I think, you know, I think that's exactly right. There's not those self-critiques of we as a people, where have we gone wrong, what we need to do to change because, or, you know, I mean, part of one aspect of it that I see is, of course, any claim is necessarily a partisan claim now and it's yeah. because you have to speak for the whole. And one of the things that occurs, you know, that occurs to me is, you know, a um, in a, an assessment that some people have made of the way in which not from the beginning, but from early enough on sometime in the 19th century, the real move in the United States, in approach towards homogenization instead of a more genuine pluralism and the canadians like to pull this one out up until recently you know but really historically it's the canadian critique of of the southern neighbors is that they have a salad bowl approach where the americans have a melting pot well a melting pot is where you literally melt all these different elements together into some sort of gray alloy and that's somehow going to to keep everybody good because you shave off all their differences. You yeah. know, this was this was the big crisis of the nineteenth century: was the different immigrant groups and the forced, you know, either the forced Americanization on the one hand, or the suspicion of immigrants and these, you know, what this, that, or the other group, you know, in each successive wave are going to be the, the undoing of our country, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and so they must conform, um, you know, rather than you know, um, a, you know, a, a more legitimate plurality. But that, that's trade that didn't just come up in the late 19th century, that traces back to the sort of the, what I see is there's two philosophical idea ideas or two religious sort of trends, uh, origins or mythic, not mythic, but you know, something like this, like two trees growing up and they begin to intertwine, you know, the one is the rationalist project of the enlightenment. Yes. You know, the, most of the framers of the constitution and the other is that puritan uh, that the, the, the roundhead theological socio-theological socio uh, view of society framing of society and so the idea the, you know the, from that puritan um framing of society the principal concern is about the catharsis of society we retain the pure we get rid of the impure we enforce conformity because i'm responsible for my neighbor's sins uh, in a way that then socially we have to we have to make sure that they don't do that, whatever that is. And that sensibility, though, no longer I think, you know, has had really grown. These two things have grown together like two branches of ivy around a tree. You know, have mm. really fused into a new organism. Um, and that those two things together, even though the sort of theological, the particular theological commitments of, of 16th century Calvinism, 17th century Calvinism are no longer necessarily adhered to by the Republic, uh, which is really more of an empire, um, which is neither good nor bad in itself. Uh, the, the particular theological principles are no longer adhered to. The theological sensibility or the religious sensibility of informing conformity responsible, morally responsible for what other people are doing in such a way that we create legislation to prohibit it. 
is mm. something that's very deeply ingrained, I think, in the American psyche that, that is part of that inheritance. That's part of that inheritance. And of course, the solution comes from a rationalist enlightenment mindset of, well, we construct society to be in this particular way or that particular way. Yeah, and there's a lot in what you just said, so I'm just trying to parse what to address first. I mean, the last thing you said about the, 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 um, the whole religious conviction in America, um, there's always been a struggle in America between church and state, obviously, the whole Jefferson's um, defense between uh, church and state. And it's very important that that division be there <clears throat> because I think this country has always been worried about falling into a, um, a British style of where state and church are one and then you, you know, where do you escape mm -hmm. to. What that causes <clears throat> oil and water problem because you have the this church and state don't want to mingle um, and they, they end up being cantankerous against each other, uh, uh, antithetical to each other frequently. Um, mm -hmm. What, you know, you see that most recently and what happened in the, with uh, Nancy Pelosi and the, um, the bishop who uh, has excommunicated her, you know, that's, you can't have the one just doing whatever you want in, in government and also claim to be a, a deeply religious and uh, uh, obedient um, Catholic, for instance. So there's this constant struggle and it, and it leads to these periods where we have fallen away and then we have a tent revival thing. And that's gone on over and over again. And, and again, it's only recently that the whole religious thing has either been subsumed completely into a sort of uh, Walmart form of religion or a um, government uh, form of religion and almost like real religious conviction has been beaten down and uh, oppressed and kind of caged so that you don't have this this counterbalance between the two and, and that's disturbing to me. Um, I think you've hit it right on the head there that there's sort of evolved an American civil religion that no. it, that subsumed the various, it, it bought up all the different brands that pre-existed it and yeah. uh, has become a Walmart. I think that's, that's a great, that's a great analogy. It's become a yeah. Walmart that you feel like you've got these, these different brands that have now been, you know, they've been purchased by a different manufacturer and the Coca-Cola doesn't quite taste exactly the same as it used to, but you know, I've got freedom because there's these different brands on the shelf. But at yes. the end of the day, it's still one big Walmart. And when something doesn't start behaving on the shelf, like it should, well, then, then the cleaning staff come in and they've got to, yeah. I just say, you know, clean up on aisle three and they got to come and they've got a, you've got, you've got a crisis, you've got a problem. But, but there, that's, that's also kind of a scary analogy too, the cleaning staff, because, you know, I, um, my sister and I have been going back and forth about Disney, about Walt Disney and about whether sure. Walt Disney has deep connections to the eugenics movement. And I think she has quite the case to, to, to make that. That I was bashing him at breakfast this morning. I, I think this is right on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, she has, and you'd be interested in what she's uncovered. This early mean. on apparently was very much in the camp of the eugenicists, and he was very true. much by the Nazi party there in Germany. That, and uh, that's true. Although he condemned the Nazis, he was a big fan. Disney himself was a big fan of Benito Mussolini. Um, yeah. And I guess where I'm going with that is that. Um, <laughs> Disney is one example. Disney Viacom is one example of these huge octopus companies that has uh, enveloped so much and incorporated so much and used all these images of mythology and story and religion as sort of tools for getting the message across, you know, getting what they want across and creating a homogeneity, which honestly is, it's very strange to me. 
Because on the one hand, I can understand that if you have a product that works, right, and you want everybody to conform to the, the product to make the, the, the society run smoothly, that's great. But um, what is the product? Is the product going to be, uh, I don't know, waspish America, you know? Because if so, what do you do with all the Polacks and all the, all the uh, um, Africans and all of the Middle Easterners and all of the Orientals? And what do you do with them? Because they don't fit into the waspish model. Um, my, my, connection, my connection to the Masonic uh, systems, the Masonic orders, mm -hmm. it seems that um, that's really what they wanted was that waspish image. And, Absolutely. And form got, as you said, cleaned up on aisle six, which is... <laughs> it scares me because when I think when cleaned up in in terms of eugenics, that's 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 some awful stuff. Um, <laughs> I was looking yeah. in, I was looking into this thing that Germany did where they had uh, kidnapping and forced sterilization of all these children sure. of mixed race, you know, yep. and that was that's appalling. It's truly appalling, but it's not something which everybody here in America saw as a bad idea. Uh, many people. Yeah, a lot of people saw it as a good idea. I think a lot of people today still see it as a good idea. I think they do. I think they do. And so homogeneity of religion or or experience of life or of um, mm -hmm. of uh, ethnic diversity, homogeneity looks good on the surface, but it has some serious implications. And maybe I don't know, especially you know, if you're any of the. Oh, go ahead. Yes, if you happen to be Scottish, it's not a good idea. <laughs> I think what we're seeing in the last few years, like probably since the, the, the 2000 teens, has been this increase of one side of the homogeneity project, um, mm -hmm. where they tried very hard, pushed very hard to move towards their own idea, their own message. And, and what it's done, it's not killed the conversation, but it's made the conversation very, very polarized in america um yeah and the other thing it's done too and this is something that somebody was pointing out it's made it so that young people especially have grown up in a system like mm -hmm. glitched out young I'm people still have, here yeah. okay young people have grown up in a system where they are kind of lost in the conversation and mm -hmm. They end up having to raise themselves and entertain themselves and to uh, fill their minds with whatever images they can get off of the dark web. And that's not a good recipe for creating healthy souls. Uh, <laughs> my friend Incidentally, and I. Yeah, go ahead. I just as a tie in uh, to that exact point, talk, what a lot of people may not know, I'm sure you're aware of, and I'm only very nominally aware of. As Tolkien's jettisoned attempt, which he ultimately scrapped in the end, to write a follow-up to the Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. where the people, the, like the kids of Gon of uh, of Gondor, start getting into some really dark stuff, uh, you know, and he he started writing a the the sort of the notes for a novel where the kids aren't all right and they start playing goblin games and getting into necromancy and and all that kind of stuff, and he realized that, that I just not going to go there. But I think that's that's the kind of image that's the you know one can spell out pretty quickly what the consequences would be. Yes, and I, and think, I think that's and, what you're talking about. An interesting point that you bring up, Tolkien. And by the way, I do this whole conversation. I have our chapter in the back of my mind, so I'm not like mm -hmm. I'm not 
collecting Tolkien. I just don't want to also <clears throat> move the conversation as a sort of a artificial shift into talking about the chapter. But no, Tolkien's books no, no. for the sequel to The Lord of the Rings were primarily based on the idea that he saw history running in cycles, that things mm -hmm. happen and they happen and they repeat it. So, for instance, his, um, his flight to the Noldor was a, a terrible event yeah. that occurred way back in the past, you know, or the, um, the, the stories of Fingolfin and Finway and, and um, all those stories that occur in the Silmarillion, which he saw as his greater work, were in themselves prototypes for events that occurred later on. And they're referred to frequently yeah. by characters like, um, like Aragorn. Mm -hmm. This is my... I don't see, I don't think Tolkien bought into the modern idea that we're all progressing towards a brighter, happier future. I don't think he thought that at all. He saw things as a sort of long beat, he called them, where it was just, you know, you're fighting for this moment in time to make things as best you can, but you have no control over the future and you have no real control over the past, necessarily. All you have is what you have, the time you're given, you know, and what you decide right. to do. You know. Which I think is a much right. way of looking at things and thinking about, you know, how we're all much better than we were in the past and we have to keep moving forward and progressing towards the glorious day of next Tuesday, you know. That's a millennialism chafes. It is. Time. And again, that's, that's where that religious uh, sensibility comes in. But I want to go it back to the, much of... I want to go back to something we, we brought up here, Cameron, because I think it's important mm -hmm. to... This idea of homogeneity, I think that the homogeneity, the, the attempt to make things more homogeneous is not just limited to America. I think it exists elsewhere. Normally elsewhere it Absolutely. exists in pur purges and exterminations of whole villages, you know, and peoples. Right. Uh, here it exists in the everybody will buy the product, you know, the mm -hmm. product they will conform to. And when you don't conform to the product, you need to go elsewhere. And, and, and that that right. is because it shuts down the conversation when you when you shove out anybody who might suggest something different or offer something different um, then you create the product but you also get rid of all these opportunities you know I'm thinking particularly of other cultures as um, mm -hmm. as Denzel Washington has said frequently it's not about race it's about culture right how yeah. how does our culture differ and I think he's spot on because there's so many cultures that have been brought into America that have been so good, so beneficial, so excellent. And why didn't we ex get them in there before? Uh, when when my when my dad when my daddy was a young boy, there was no such thing as a pizza parlor. They did not exist in America, and because the Italian immigration wave had not really occurred until after World War One. And so when the first pizza parlor opened in his town, he said it was the most marvelous thing. He had never had anything like a pizza pie before. He said it was just the greatest thing in the world. And I think, I think to myself, what, what, is there anything analogous to that? Is there anything like in, our, in my culture, which cropped up suddenly, I'm like, wow, that's, that's spectacular. I never thought of that before. I'm sure there is. But, we need haggis joints in every corner, Will. I guess, oh my gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that that boat's already sailed uh but what what i one one example comes very much to mind is that there's a current immigration from the middle east and a current in, immigration from um from africa a new mm -hmm. wave of over and their perspective 
not that their food is good too, but their perspective is what's so interesting. To see mm -hmm. so many Nigerian or Ugandan families, for instance, here in America, mm -hmm. who love the freedom and love the country and want to learn and want to succeed. I'm like, that is such a fresh perspective. And we need to incorporate more of that. And their defiance of the product and their defiance of the message and their you know, their refusal to buy into everything that's, that's uh, sold to them. That to me is mm -hmm. quite fascinating. But what I see as happening on a large scale is far more like the dragon waste uh, in that mm -hmm. when a company, when a government, when a society tries to make a homogeneity, you'll all conform, you'll all believe the same way. You'll all, can I use the example, you'll all get the jab. When they yeah. start doing what they create is a silence in anybody who would object. They obliterate them and they make a wasteland around their, their fortress or their tower. It's a very right. drastic thing that occurs. It so, is. So here's, here's my maybe clumsy segue back into our chapter. Actually, right? that's, if I can give the assist on that, that the, any dissenting voices or others who don't, um, who don't, who aren't into the product are like the birds who fly away. And ah. all that's left then is the desolation and the waste. <laughs> yeah, it's like that, isn't it? There's a great passage. I just read this when I was reviewing this chapter. Where is it? I love it because they're describing the dragon waste as they come into that land. And this is again, yes. chapter 11 in The Hobbit. That's what this podcast or whatever is about. So it says here, um, they reached the skirts of the mountain and it says they did not dare to follow the river much further towards the gate, but they went on beyond the end mm. of the southern river until lying hidden behind a rock, they could look out and see the dark cavernous opening in a great cliff wall between the arms of the mountain. Dragon <coughs> is somewhere there. They don't know where it is. So they're, they're, they're hiding behind a rock. Out of it, the waters of the running river sprang, and out of it, too, there came a stream and a dark smoke. Nothing moved in the waste, save the vapor and the water, and every now and again a black and ominous crow. The only sound was the sound of the stony water, and every now and again the harsh croak of a bird. And Balin shuddered. Um, and this, that description is interesting to me, because very much like, on the one hand, what happens there in Lord of the Rings when they're outside of the Black Gate, the description of those slag lands outside the Black Gate. It's also yeah. interesting, it's very much like what one would have seen there on the Psalm in World War One, that, that wasted land and all those destroyed cities that have been devastated by bombing. Yeah. You get a sense of this, you know, the land is just denuded of any kind of cover or green or life that could have provided you the ability to avoid the stare of the, of the one, of the eye, you know, dragon yeah. uh, but it reminds me of it reminds me of <laughs> what the experience of what uh, we seem to be going through right now as a society um, the sense that all different all the different functions all the different structures that used to exist to provide cover are there's an attempt to tear them down yeah and without the, yeah for, I think that's where do you hide? Exactly right. There's no place to hide from the dragon because the leveling of society, which has been at work for 300 years, has only taken on rapid 
more industrialized, more expedited, um, has picked up speed. Yes. Right. To now the yeah. leveling, the leveling of the last institutions down. Yeah. And maybe, maybe eventually, as we see, um, where they pointed out, actually, in in this moment here, as this is this is maybe worth just highlighting on that. Uh, in between kind of the sections that you just uh, mentioned, uh, oh, they they came round a bend, and the river, and they saw flowing splash many boulders um, mm. into a wide valley shadowed by the mountains' arms, the gray ruins of ancient houses, towers, mm. and walls. There lies all that is left of Dale, said Balin. The mountain sides were green with woods and all the sheltered valley rich and pleasant in the days when the bells rang in that town. He looked both sad and grim as he said this. He had been one of Thorin's companions on the day when the dragon came. And I think that the that in a scenario of the this desolation of Smaug, the desolate wasteland, you might have at best the ruins of an old civilization. Yes. But they're hollow and they're cold and they're still gray because they're stone. Yeah. Yeah, I can't get out of my mind that, that image of the bombed out cities in World War One. It's it's like yeah. that. But it's that, that image <clears throat> for me is uh an image of so much that I'm seeing in terms of the social structures that we uh, experience now mm -hmm. i mean let me take an example when i was a kid and i and i was not yet married and i wanted to go out with somebody you know you'd go out and you would meet people and you would call them on the phone and get together and you play in a band or you'd go to the beach and party down or you you know you'd go out and, and roam around downtown you know and you had all these different things mm -hmm. you do bowling was a big deal for us you know and right. that, young people how do young people date how do they even meet each other these days do they even have the desire to meet or get out of their mom's basement and stop playing fortnite many don't many don't and when they do when they do how do they find anybody when half of the population seems like it's bonkers you know um that's it, that's a common complaint right they don't they, 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 there's no one there's no one to find yeah. It, and it's like the, the the problem is that it's like um, it's like having nothing there to give you hope or joy, and the dragon is staring at you the whole time. Because the enemy is not really the opposite political party. The enemy is not no. the human beings who who have opposing views. The enemy is something existential. It's a it's a yeah, being. It's, it's not consciousness. It's not the evil. It's not the evil dictator who who's got a name, you know. It's not the Stalin who's sitting over in you know in office and the you know wherever, in the capital. It's not the government. It's not the. It's, it's not Big Brother, a government official who's watching you, but it's the machine. It's the machine itself, the the technium or whatever you want to call it. That's this dragon. That there's something, you know, um, yeah, spiritual, if you will. And it is watching, or at least it could be watching at any moment, and you don't have some place to hide behind. Yep. And that was, and I, I remember Franz, Franz Kafka writing about that, how the problem mm -hmm. wasn't these individuals that, that did you wrong. It was that the individuals themselves were servants of a much bigger thing, which was that you know, the machine that was already put in motion. Václav Havel yeah. writes, too, how the machine sweeps up ordinary schlubs so that they become 
um, a, a hammer or they become a, a shotgun uh, and, and they yeah. just do their job. Yeah. And even there, you know, one could say in a, in a Christian level, what, what is running the machine? It's a, it's a, as Romano Guardini puts it, it's, it's a spirit of the demonic. There's, yeah. <laughs> there's a spirit of the demonic, whatever that means, seems to run this machine that wants to hammer everybody down. Right. And involved, they're just, they, they end up being just these poor schmoes. They themselves wanted to make a living. And so, you know, don't, you know, I, <laughs> Jesus, I watched, <coughs> watched a video about China and about the lockdown mm -hmm. in is completely off the radar in terms of regular news. So if anybody gets a chance to see what's going on in China right now, it is an absolutely terrifying thing. The whole yeah. country, especially Taiwan, is on permanent lockdown. You can't even leave your house. And people are starving to death and dying in their own apartments and, and, and killing themselves because they're so depressed. And I watched one scene, one, one video, where they uploaded it to the internet, used a cell phone, blah, blah, blah. Where these people were locking their door against the state um, officials who were trying to get in to vaccinate them. And uh, they locked the door and the state officials were kicking down their door, breaking it apart and coming in uh, to force them to the ground to give them vaccines. And it was hellish. I was like, these, these poor people who can't even find escape in their apartments. And yet the officials themselves were like, they were angry, obviously. But they were just like uh, functionaries. They weren't evil, like horns and stuff. Were, it was like they were just ordinary dopes who were doing just this. Just a tool, man. Tool. Yeah. Was, I mean, that was probably more horrifying than anything. Was that you were not dealing with? You're not dealing with Satan incarnate. You're just dealing with some functionary. Exactly, because if if it's the enemy at the door, there's a real somebody you can oppose. Yeah. But here. In that kind of scenario where they're just a functionary because the enemy has armies of assistance as bono said it's a very interesting song get out of your own way by the way the, mm. the lyrics of that are pretty pretty good um but it's it's like what tolkien wrote in, in in the lord of the rings there was the mouth of sauron he had he was it no there, his name is told in no tale for he himself had forgotten it right his only identity was to be the mouth of Sauron. Well, you can't you can't push back like there's not a beat there's not an entity there it's like um it's like you know agents in the matrix or something it's just a computer it's the manifestation the avatar a bigger computer program that's out right there's, there's, there's nothing to fight nothing to resist at hand which is almost more dangerous than if you had a real human being who is fully human yes in front of you who you could reason with but if they're yes. just like hey man i'm following protocol there's there's nothing you can do Yes, it just resistance really is futile. Is it, God, yes, another great example. Interesting, the first thing you brought up was a Bono lyric because that was exactly what I was thinking too. Uh, it shows my past. Um, <laughs> they back in the day, kids. U two was a, a band which really represented a zeitgeist that was going on. And there's a lyric where they say, "You know, I'd hit out if I only knew where to hit." You know, I'd hit out. If only knew where to hit, which it represents this sort of confusion of what the hell am I supposed to do against this machine? And the zeitgeist, which again, you know, it, maybe I'm looking in the wrong place, but I don't see this in music and popular music at all these days. The zeitgeist in the 80s and the 90s, and even the early 2000s, 
was one of just anger and rebellion. I remember the Sex Pistols yeah. being way, and I remember the Clash being this way, and U2 was this way, and, you know, Garbage later on with the grunge movement was this way, right. and R.E.M. and Radiohead, you know, all these bands that were writing music was like, you know, I am a piece of undigestible material. You know, you are not going to consume me. And for, mm -hmm. for me, growing Wow, yeah, I'm, you know, I am rebellious spirit. I mean, I'm not going to be subsumed by, by the machine, uh, by the dragon. Uh, and yeah. I don't know, maybe I don't see it right now, follow current music, but so many, even you too, to some degree, so many bands and so much music right now coming out is just a sort of pamphletum. It's like the part of the mm -hmm. home, uh, product that's put out. Yeah. And when that happens, when that happens, you get birds that sing a croaking tune, which again, I'm right. not trying to, I'm not trying to it's, make this artificial connection. But it, but it's that, but it's 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 exactly appropriate because Ed Tolkien belabors the point of the distinction between crows and ravens, as we'll see in a in a later chapter. But these yeah. are crows; these are carrion crows, which are distinct from ravens, a more sophisticated bird that, to the naked eye, looks similar unless yeah. you're a particular specialist at birding. But yeah, they, these are crows. That's the bird that's left. The only bird that can, that can tolerate being in this desolation is in this desolate waste is a carrion crow, yeah, who just, just croaks. Here's the, yeah. here's the thing that is so fascinating about Tolkien is he was able to get this perfect symbolism, this perfect imagery over and over and over again. The image of birds for him, and he loved yes. nature, trees, he loved the forest, he loved birds. The image of birds for him is the image of the plethora, the, the various forms of artwork that all kind of work together to create beauty. Because when you listen to yeah. bird song, just stand and listen for, for, for a couple minutes, you notice there are hundreds of birds singing different songs, and yet they don't, mm -hmm. not clashing with each other. Yeah. Um, they end up making a sort of symphony of the outdoors. I'm listening to it right now, actually. Out Pluralism there. right there that we we're talking about. Which is yeah. a symbolic image and has been a symbolic exactly. image way back. I remember yes. Giotto painting have birds everywhere. It's a symbolic mm -hmm. image for the plurality of the human race, of what we do when we're doing art, when we're creating art, art history. That the music of Monte Verdi should sit on a par with the music of Palestrina, which I hate to say this, but and some people will object, should sit on a par with the music of, say, Led Zeppelin. Can we go out on Linda say, you know, yeah. or or the music of Scott, or the music of uh, Duke Ellington, or you know, it, it, not that they're all equally great in terms of their artistry skill but that all of them are creating their music and they're not they're not contradictory in the the, the attempt to capture beauty they're mm -hmm. all working together to create symphony that and means yes that is and and it's the conspicuous absence Tolkien mentions birds just enough in this chapter to highlight their conspicuous absence of bird song yes and it's a the bird that brings us to the to actually to the that, that provides the solution but it's not as we might want it to be some lark sitting yep. on a on a green bird you know somehow you know here's here's if it were a modern right if it were if it were made into a modern movie you know whatever i don't know what jackson did with this but <clears throat> what we want to see is that 
you know, they're at the door, they're on the doorstep and it's in this hidden way. And then maybe there's this little tiny, you know, there's a little tiny olive tree that started to grow or something. And it's a little sprig of greenery and a, and a, a lark comes and sits and sings. You know, we hear this and Bilbo heard for the first time since he, you know, how know, who, who knows how long, you know, yeah. there was the bird's song and it, and it awakened their hearts. And then the sun shone through and then the key, the gate opened and they had the key and they put it. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. Right. The, the general, I'll, I just want to say something of the general arc of how this chapter goes. And we can talk about the details if, if that's all right with you, yes, because yes, I think so. this is just around this theme of a bird singing as yeah. somehow it is symbolic and it's conspicuously absent even in the climax of the chapter, even in the solution of the chapter. But what do we see instead? We're, we're told earlier in the early on in the chapter, so we're, there's the crows, right? But a little mm -hmm. shortly after that, they kind of settle into a camp. And in the meanwhile, some of them explored the ledge beyond the opening. They found a path that led higher up and higher under the mountain. They didn't dare to venture very far that way, nor was there much use in it. Right? It's just more of the craggy, gray mm. um, wasteland. But up there, a silence reigned, broken by no bird or sound, except that of the wind in the crannies of stone. Mm -hmm. They spoke, they, the dwarf, the company, the dwarves and, and Bilbo, spoke low and never called nor sang. For danger brooded in every door. Excuse for danger brooded in every rock. Hmm. And so they, there was no singing over this. They were too. They were too eager to trouble about the moon ruins or thinking. Like they couldn't think. There's this heaviness. There's this darkness. Nobody speaks up. It's desolate. Hmm. And you know they're they're just depressed. Their spirits are low at this point. They, they rise a little bit when they find the path, but they sink again when they realize it goes to where the door probably should be. We can't find the door. Uh, Bilbo's sitting there. The dwarves are sitting nearby, and he overhears them grumbling, saying, well, maybe we should send him in the front gate. You know, who cares if he gets eaten by a dragon at this point? We got nothing else. This is stupid. This is Why are we even here? You know, they, they get that way, and everybody gets that way. Like, we get that way because we're living in a wasteland, and we know this is where the gate, the door is supposed to be it's right there on the map but what the hell am i supposed to do now so bilbo's sitting there he's sitting there's goodness gracious that what they're thinking beginning to think of me night he shudders at the thought of going into the steaming gate the night was miserable they barely slept he you know he, he gets up he's sitting there and you know, the, the, you know there's many days kind of go but what do we have is bilbo's sitting there on what they've called the doorstep, this little alcove in the side of the mountain, high up on a cliff, where they know the door should be. He went to the opening, and there, pale and faint, was a thin new moon rising above the rim of the earth. At that very moment, he heard a sharp, not a bird song, not a lark singing all of a sudden, but he heard a sharp crack behind him. There on the gray stone in the grass was an enormous thrush, nearly coal-black, with its pale yellow breast freckled with dark spots. Crack! It had caught a snail and was knocking it on the stone. Crack! Crack! Suddenly, Bilbo understood. Forgetting all danger, he stood on the ledge and hailed the dwarf, shouting and waving. Suddenly, he understood. When the thrush knocks on Durin's day, right, the last sunlight of Durin's day, whatever that is, you know, the, the things that was written on the, on the map, that was written ages ago but it's the thrush cracking snails against the dead rock that is the the harbinger the 
the call that the bridegroom cometh, as it were. Mm. There's so much in that. Okay. I don't know where to start necessarily, but I'm just going to start randomly. But why is the thrush coal black? I mean, when you look at the animated version by Rankin Bass, he's, he's brown and, and red. It's like a robin or something. It's, yeah, it's American thrush. Yeah, I don't know what Jackson does with it. I have... The Probably fact that it's pigeon black. or a parrot or something. I'm not a parrot, yeah. Um, <laughs> the fact that it's on the one hand coal black, yes. which means it's like a crow, but it's not a crow. It's you know, not, and exactly. Blends in with that desolation, everything else being gray and charred in the area. So it's, it's almost like, it's almost like a creature out of the underworld, you know. Exactly. Not, it's a thrush. And a thrush is a bird that makes a specific song. And it's a, actually a beautiful bird when it comes down to it. And um, it's a magical creature, right? Yeah. Why is it cracking? Snails. This is something that's always struck me. Why does he have snails be the thing that is cracking? Why not? Uh, why not crack something else? You know, beside the snail. Is it that the snail has that Fibonacci golden spiral on its back? Is that something that told him? <laughs> I don't know. Wow. It's just, <clears throat> but the way that it's described, even in the prophecy, is yeah. standing gate when the thrush knocks when the thrush knocks in other words it's the thrush that knocks on the door to the dragon's lair it's the thrush that knocks the door to the subconscious it's the thrush that ends up being sort of the herald like hermes almost yeah because all of their knocking and pounding and hammering and pushing and magical spells they're trying to use to open the door you know push where a door should be none of that worked none of their efforts but it's and a of course, thrush that has to knock. This is very much like, this is repeated in The Lord of the Rings, by the way, for those who aren't uh, thinking about this necessarily, the, the, in Moria, outside Moria, you yeah, know, near the lake, right. they're stuck again and they can't get in. And then finally Gandalf at his wit's end, he overhears this conversation that the hobbits are having and he realizes that the spell is to say methlon because it says speak friend and enter. So you have to say the word friend and that will open the doors to, to the dark underworld of Moria. I am a friend of the underworld. Mm. I wonder if there isn't something going on here that the thrush is the, the friend to these travelers. He is a creature that is almost like a creature from the underworld, being black. And he's doing something destructive. He's doing something where he is breaking up the, the, the image of this little slimy creature, the snail, these, these lines of wherever it goes. But they're also, to some degree, creatures of beauty. If you ever actually look at these things, and they have this rainbow, yeah. the Fibonacci sequence is, is there, mm -hmm. and breaking them apart, destroying them. Is it, in a way, that the entrance to the, the, entrance to the subconscious, the realm of the dragon, actually has to have that breaking apart to jar us and to realize, oh, that's how we get in. That's what opens this thing. Right. And, and 
the breaking of what specifically it's their shell it's their protection it's this it's and it's so fragile it's a fragile shell but it's a, a, a fragile mask or shell or box that it's encases yep. itself in is being smashed on the rock by the bird so that it can consume it because the, the, the bird eats these you can see this the thrush that live near here they look just like this uh and they, they'll be out on the rocks in the morning and they could pick up a snail smashed against the rock so that they can they can eat it this is a common it's a it's a commonplace it's a it's a trifle but it's also something which happens notice three times crack 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 three. yes so spell. exactly and it's a spell that is a shocking spell it's like oh because it's a bilbo suddenly on his just like, oh my gosh, breaks like the that. silence it breaks the silence because it is it's a like a koan all of a sudden bilbo understands ah it's a koan i like that yeah suddenly he understood it's it reminds me that robert frost the way that a, a snow a, a crow had knocked down snow on his back you know and suddenly causes right. him to appreciate something of the day that he had rude that sudden shock of snow falling down Robert Frost's back, the knocked off a tree by a crow, in that case, another yeah. black, is a similar experience. You get that sudden shock waking up and that, that, that shocks you into realizing this is the way, not, not, mm. not the doorbell, ding dong, hello smog, but rather that this is what we are supposed to do at this moment, this, this specific time, we're supposed to do this specific thing. I think mm. that this is, Brilliant. Again, I, I've said this so often with Tolkien. I think this is a brilliant passage because yeah. it is otherwise kind of incomprehensible. How the hell would they have a prophecy like this? And how the hell would the, some bird fit into it? And how the hell would they be there right on Durance Day? It's almost like this is uh, providential or something, you know? There's but, another. There's another hand at work other than how do you say? There's another guiding spirit at work other than just the spirit of. This what it was Gordinus, uh, the spirit of the diabolical, the spirit of, of of I mean, the satanic spirit, the spirit of darkness, or something. There's yep. another hand at work. There's another order that um, yeah, that can that can supersede it. And sometimes that order employs creatures and images that are mm. that seem to be destructive or dark and outside of our ken. To shake us right. up, wake us. Right. The uh, the the dark bird out of the underworld is not the bird we'd expect. We'd expect a, a pleasant dove, or we would expect a brightly colored uh, songbird or something like that. It's not that. It's this ordinary, dull thrush, the creature of the underworld, and it's doing something destructive that suddenly wakes us <laughs> up. That that's what the thing we're supposed to do. Um. And, and this is why I think this is an example of what in Christianity is called the, the Felix culpa moment. God sometimes uses or frequently uses those shocking elements, the, that, that mm -hmm. experience sharp suffering to wake us up to what's really important. That if we are living a, a life where everything's happy and pleasant, we never have that moment of actually seeing clearly and, and putting things in. You know, when I was a, a kid, I don't know if I've ever told this story. When I was a kid, I was a sophomore in high school, and I was just ding-donging around, you know, chasing skirts and having a good time. And I thought, you know, what, what am I supposed to do with my life? I didn't really think about that that much, but it was like I didn't really have any direction or purpose. And in the springtime of that year, my mom was shot. She was shot on the highway, and I don't know if I've told this story. Oh, wow. She was driving to the mall. She was driving to the mall with my sister in the passenger seat.
and somebody opened up on the highway with a shotgun and, and blasted out the back window of her car. And one of the pellets of the shotgun hit her in the head and lodged underneath her brain in her nasal cavity. And she had to have a surgery to have oh, her removed. And um, it was, wow, that was a short, sharp shock if I ever had one, because that really yeah. woke suddenly, very suddenly. The fact that I had to take charge of my own life, because there's, <laughs> there's nothing like cleaning your mom's own blood out of the front seat to tell you that you are mortal and you know you are destined to dust you will return right and at the same time in that story the other the other amazing element was that the the driver's rear window had a a blast in it where the glass had been blasted through no it was blasted out that's right the driver's back window was blasted out and on the passenger side there was a hole in the window about that big which i still to this day do not understand this if he was shooting from the from the driver's side, the, the 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 spray would go outward, meaning it would hit the back window first and then spray into the car, killing whoever was there. And it didn't right. do that. It collapsed. It was, it was like the hand of God collapsed it and sent it out the other window so that my sister is living to this day, thanks be to God. Wow. But that experience, I remember that experience of having my mom come back from surgery and how weak she was and how we had to really take care of her for several days afterwards and then the cleaning the blood out of the front seat that was when that that crack occurred and all of a sudden i could not just be this casanova running after girls you know and and that was my purpose in life i had to find something else something else that was really woke me up to to a path of um not just spiritual and intellectual but i think of uh, just becoming a, a whole person yeah, I, I think that the, I think the Lord sends us images, experiences, ideas that hit us and hit us hard. And when mm-hmm. they do, be aware of the fact that this is the moment. This is Duran's day. This is when we have to use the key to unlock that passage. Yeah. Right. And there's no time for dilly dally then too. It's it's not it's not how do you say. The thrush knocking doesn't affect the door opening. It it heralds it. It heralds and, it, or it, it heralds the 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 opportunity. A small piece of rock shales away, and there's a keyhole. You yeah. still have to have the key and be ready. You have to be watchful and waiting, vigilant and attentive to then put the key in at the moment and turn it before the sun sets. Yes, right, exactly. Before the sun goes down, you're cast into darkness again, which is another great image, right? right. That yeah. that passage, I read this one, but I love that passage where it says, um, he explained what to the, the, the dwarves. It says, um, the hobbits standing by the gray stone and the dwarves with wagging beards watching impatiently, they all fell silent. The sun sank lower and lower and their heart hopes fell. It sank into <coughs> a reddened cloud and disappeared. The dwarves groaned, but still Bilbo stood almost without moving. The little moon was dipping to the horizon and evening was coming on. Then suddenly, when their hope was lowest, a red ray of the sun escaped like a finger through a rent in the cloud. A gleam of light came straight through the opening into the bay and fell on the smooth rock face. The old thrush who had been watching from a high perch with beady eyes and head cocked on one side gave a sudden trill and there was a loud crack. A flake of rock split from the wall and fell, a hole appeared suddenly about three feet from the ground. 
quickly trembling lest the chance should fade the dwarves rushed to the rock and pushed in vain the key the key cried bilbo where is thorin the key shouted bilbo try it now while there's still time that's a, I mean, so great that whole image is so great and again it's like how you know this is so coincidental how the hell did this happen but it put that question aside the the images he uses the last ray of light Again, it's like that, that image in uh, Lord of the Rings. I have to go back mm -hmm. to that. He this later on with Frodo and Sam at the crossroads and the darkness of Mordor. <coughs> One last ray of light comes through suddenly and shines on the, the, the ring of flowers around the head of the fallen king. Right. And That's right. Frodo says, they will not prevail. They will not last forever. The darkness will not. Right. It's an amazing scene similar to this where they, you know, they open the door but they notice that the image he uses too. Uh, a, a, they say that it's like a finger that comes down, like that image in um, in the great pa painting of God uh, in the <laughs> Adam. Right, it's the finger of God coming. Ah, the finger of God comes down, and it's that mm -hmm. moment we suddenly get the uh, the flake falling off, and you use the key and you enter into what ends up being this very dangerous situation but you go down into the underworld into the realm of subconscious into the lair of the dragon to confront him because you, you can get in um you know i was thinking this morning, and i this maybe mm -hmm. this is interesting to me back to our conversation of homogeneity i think one of the reasons i've worked <clears throat> is like i many people i've spoken to love Tolkien and love other things like Tolkien because they think of him as their own. This is my story, this is my own story. And when it becomes yeah. commercial, when it becomes homogenized, it's almost like a violation of the being. Uh, musical bands, uh, obscure artwork, um, small eateries uh, that you go to for a burger here and there, you know, that kind of thing. Right. It's like our place, that's our own thing. Um, yeah. And it's very different from the commercial pablatum that's pushed on people. We don't want that. We want our own thing. Um, mm -hmm. Back back in the day when Tolkien was still new and had not yet reached the <clears throat> into, we had this era where small things would come out uh, connected to Tolkien, like a board game, for instance, or um, <laughs> no, or you get a, you get a, a calendar based on Tolkien. You're like, right. this is so great look at this this is oh, this is one of our things and now it's like there's so much it's a glut that you you, you yeah. can't go anywhere but you see some token thing it's almost like it hurt it hurts it's a it's a deluge of commercialism that has not ruined it but has definitely but it's like charlie brown and the charlie brown's christmas you just go around everywhere you go it's even my own dog has gone commercial yeah yeah, and, and, and a good example, because Santa Claus is on every street corner. He's no longer coming mm -hmm. into the house, your, your own house. But I love the way that the, the, the original Tolkien writings, you know, all the other yeah. gizmos and gugaws aside, the Tolkien writings are still, they're hated by academia, and they're not seen as proper academic works. And they're seen as a lesser thing by many academics. And yet, most people that read Tolkien love him, love his stuff, much yeah. more than Al Proust, you know, or... Well, uh, why, 
yeah, why is some of this crap stuff put for like it's all the contemporaneous with Tolkien? It's not like well, he's new. You got to read old literature. There's really crap stuff and yeah, decent yeah. stuff, but it's just a different bend. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. This is not treated the same way. But but whatever the whatever the case, I know one thing. You know, <clears throat> and the experience of others that I've talked to is that because those other writers got subsumed by academia and made into academic works, it's like they mm -hmm. were digested by the academic beast. And Tolkien That's has never true. been the academic beast. You know, when you read uh, Herman Melville... Even as an academic, he refused to be digested by the academic beast. Yes, yeah. And yeah the man no. himself. Yeah. <laughs> Um, when you read like Herman Melville, Melville's great. I mean, his stuff is amazing, but he's an academic, academic beast. You know, you read Herman Melville because he's an academic work, you know, or you read uh, Chaucer or you read Milton or, um, mm -hmm. you know, because they're part of the academic thing. Um, and it's a, there's a tint there. There's a, there's a taint uh, maybe because they've become part of the beast and you can no longer read, say, Robert Louis Stevenson or, or the poetry of, uh, of T.S. Eliot. You can't read it with the same kind of zest when they were just writers. They were just writing. You can't read it. You have to study it. You have to study it. Yeah, right. Yeah. If, and if you're out in the, the, the common world, the working world, you don't read it because that's all part of academia anyway. Who, who that's what those it? people do. But those people yeah. do. Um, right. And it's another reason why I love Tolkien is he has not been digested by the beast yet. He's somebody who stands very much apart from it. And yeah. he tells a story that most people in our modern era go through. Yeah. Yeah, not the least of which the story of this, this journey that we've been cataloging here for the last 11 chapters. Right. Okay. And we're left to enter the 12th. I want you to let, let you say something. It's just as you that reminded me of something but but good yep. go no just that the journey has wound around but has ended up right here at this point yes which again for me is a classic example of how providence works our whole and life, just on time right on time like that whatever the thing is that's happening right now that you're having to deal with that's the thing you do whatever it is or i should correct myself whether they arrived just on time or not, I can't say. But just looking at the calendar itself, they seem to have arrived a few days early. So when it seems they're sitting for an interminable wait, it may be that you're just a little ahead of time. When you're <laughs> sitting there bored in the waste and nothing is coming through, it may be you just have to wait a little longer. They also serve who only stand and wait as that one academic right. poet. Is <laughs> that what yeah. academic poet said? Or well, like, he, like the main the protagonist in Kung Fu is a young boy, right? He's got to stand attentive outside the gates, and yeah. it's only because it's standing attentive, which is actually taken. I, I'm sure it's common also in in you know Sha the Shaolin Temple or whatever. But this that 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 kind of thing is actually prescribed or described by John Cashin, <clears throat> the sort of early you know three third century fourth century monastic anthropologist writing about these weirdos who went off to the desert to live this sort of new they invented christian monasticism living in the deserts of egypt he said yeah yeah to get in you got to stand attentive outside the gate and, you know be ignored and and despised and only those who stand attentive can enter yeah it's a great point because the the modern fervor for action now 
immediate act, immediate response, send off a tweet, whatever it is, is to me disgusting. It's um, maybe this is a, a an immediate knee jerk reaction I'm having right now, but <laughs> it's it's almost like you can't just wait, think about it, and then give a civilized response. You know, you, you can't be satisfied with the fact that this pain you're going through right now might be passing. It might that be passing. The moment you're might be tomorrow or the day after, if it's not today. Right. And it might be heralded by something as simple and mundane as a thrush cracking snails against the rock. And only if you're ready can you insert the key. But it's not open immediately to gold and jewels, right? When the door opens, they push it five feet high and three broad. The, the, this door was outlined and slowly, without a sound, swung inwards. It yes. seemed as if the dark... And so what's your reward for waiting patiently and getting here just at the right time? Gosh, this is exciting. It pushes the door up and it swings inwards. And it seemed as if darkness flowed out like a vapor from the hole in the mountainside. A deep darkness in which nothing could be seen lay before their eyes. A yawning mouth leading in and down. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's so great. That's so I great. Yeah. There, you this know? Far too, kids. You know, now you get <laughs> old or not. You know. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But I mean, that's what's necessary, isn't it? I mean, if it you're is. going to complete the journey, what did you what did you go out of the wilderness to find anyway? You know, was it just some dude right. dressed off clothing? Because that you know, you made a long journey for nothing, Johnny. Right. Uh, no, you have Where to. Is... You, the moment will occur and you have to go down into that uh, in order to finish mm -hmm. that, to finish it, right? Yeah. As Leonard Cohen says, I've struggled with some demons. They were middle class and tame, et cetera, et cetera. And the refrain is, you want it darker, but I'm ready, my Lord. I like that. I like that. Great. It's from his last album. Um, great, great song. His refrain throughout actually is, Hineini, Hineini the Hebrew word for here I am behold here I am yes because when we ask the Lord to send us it's frequently that he's sending us into something that's not going to be pleasant at first mm -hmm. but that's the only but, way to the treasure the only way to the treasure it's the only way to the resurrection isn't it mm -hmm. yeah unless you go through a, a, that experience unless you drink from that cup unless you eat my body you have no resurrection in me yeah. Well, that's a somber note, I think, but it's a good note to end on. That's um, right. We are going to finish this quest of the Hobbit. I, I assure you. That's right. Um, it'll be a pleasant ending, even though Bilbo doesn't right now think it's going to be pleasant for us. It will be a pleasant ending. It will be. So, Cameron, I thank you. Um, and thank you. Take, care. take care of that cold. Is your at least dry, if not. Yeah. yeah. On the mend. On that note, farewell, we'll have you fair to the areas we'll see you at the journey's end. And may the wind under your wings bury where the sun sails and the moon walks. God bless, my friend. Yes. Au revoir.
concludes another episode of Avalon Mentors Podcast. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, would you kindly thumb the like button and also give the show a positive review on whatever platform you're listening on. Until next time, cast off the works of darkness, put upon you the armor of light. So long.